Hello, my name is Samuel George London and welcome to Comics for the Apocalypse. On today's episode, I speak to comic book writer and very nice chap, Dominic Archer, about what comics he would take into the apocalypse. But before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Comic Scene. Comic Scene is an award-winning magazine that's available digitally and in print in selected comic shops and news agents in the UK, Ireland, Australia, Canada and the good old USA. With a Harley Quinn front cover, issue 12 will be available in shops and online from this Thursday, 20th of February. Inside, you'll find a beginner's guide to Harley's history, a look back at classic 70s UK comics, an interview with Pat Mills about the spring launch of Action 2020, and so much more. If that tickles your fancy, digital and print subscriptions are available from £2.50 at getmycomics.com forward slash comic scene, or you can simply order it from any newsagent in the UK or Ireland. Also, be sure to check out their website, comicscene.org, for more news, details and other fun stuff. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Hello, Dominic Archer. How's it going? Hi, Sam. I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, man. And um, we were just discussing off air how how busy our days have been because it's it's Monday here on uh, on the broadcast. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Mondays can can always be a bit busy, and, and particularly towards the end of the day, we're, we're we're all rushing around, aren't we? Yeah, I think I've I'm a couple of hours ahead of you, so I've hit the rush hour uh, a little bit earlier. And I don't think it matters where you are. Rush hour sucks. Oh, absolutely absolutely yeah. um and just just for the listeners uh, you're based in moscow yes Aren't yeah you? incredible yes. how did that come about just quickly well i i was living oh god i was living in uh in china originally then um i my girlfriend is chinese and she studies in moscow so it was a pretty natural transition over here um which is that's not quite as an exciting story as it could have been, but uh, no, yeah, it was kind of a, a natural move. The only downside is is that it's really cold. Ah, and, yes, uh, it yes. would be, yeah, particularly yes. this time of year. Huh? Yeah, I was by the beach before, and now I'm really resenting this. But uh, no, it's oh, no. it's a it, it's a beautiful city. It's just too cold for me. Yeah, man fair play um but uh for for those that haven't come across you just yet uh, mm. what do you do in the world of comics i am a writer which is a very loose term to use but um i've been writing comics for about 10 years now right um, i started writing when i was at university because my bachelor's degree was in script writing for film and tv and theater and stuff like that and uh i was writing comics at the same time but the difficult thing with uh, writing comics is that without an artist, it doesn't matter how much you write, you're not going to get anywhere. Yep. So uh, I did a master's degree in comics and graphic novels at the University of Dundee. And it was there I met all of these just ridiculously talented artists and creators. And uh, these are the guys that I've been working with kind of up till now. That is fantastic. And what what an opportunity um, to to study at University of Dundee um that would be something that I would have loved to have done when I was younger um, or at least have the foresight to actually 
go for it. <laughs> well, it's never too late. I mean, what, one True. of the things that's really great about, about master's degrees is that everyone who is there is just dedicated and loves it. So yeah. it was a mix of, of ages and, uh, and like uh, the countries of origin and everything. We had guys who would come just off of their, off of their bachelor's straight into the master's. And some of us were like 40, 50 and decided this was something that we really cared about and really wanted to learn. So everyone who's there really cares about it, which is, uh, yeah, which is more, more important than anything else, I guess. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Um, now, uh, where can uh, people find you on the internet? I am at uh, com which is uh, nice and simple. Twitter wasn't as lucky with me, though. Twitter wouldn't give me at Dominic Archer Comics. So I think I'm, I'm at Comics Archer. Then I have an Instagram, but the name's really complicated right now because we have this Kickstarter running. So the name is like Dominic Archer, Kickstarter, blah, 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 blah. I wouldn't worry about that. Um, <laughs> the, the best place to go right now, though, will be the, the Kickstarter page itself. If you go to Kickstarter and search for a boxer, then you'll find the, the graphic novel that I'll be shouting about for later in the episode, I guess. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and for, uh, for the listeners, of course, you can just go straight to the show notes and click through if you want to check out any of Dominic's work at all. Um, and yeah, as you were saying, um, you will be having a Kickstarter running um, and, and that's launched today? It launches in two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. Cool. Yes. And so yes. it's called a boxer. Yes. Yeah, and, yes. and, and what's, uh, what's the flavour of the comic? So a boxer is about an up-and-coming fighter who's got to choose between his career in boxing and his sexual identity as a gay man. And those two things are uh, not necessarily complementary to each other because boxing is dominated by uh, a hyper-masculine identity that all of the fighters have to exude among each other. Uh, and weakness is one of those things that's very much preyed upon in combat sports. So while uh, being from an LGBT community is not something that outside of sports we might perceive as a weakness in somebody, if there is something different, then that can lead to uh, that can lead to changing a legacy, to identifying someone, uh, determining the the future of their career, especially in in the fighting. So it's about. Uh, a boxer called Mike Shepard, and it charts his career from Olympic hopeful uh, up to, well, I won't say how far it goes, but it goes through his professional career as well. That's awesome, man. Um, and uh, yeah, how, how did that story come about? Well, at the time when, we first, when I first thought of a boxer, I was teaching in China, as I said earlier on, and uh, I had already done the master's degree and the world of indie comics and academia is very, uh, as, I guess, as supportive of the LGBTQ community as you can be, really. You're not going to find anywhere more supportive than academia and indie comics. It's like, like that's it, right? Yeah. Um, but then after that, I immediately went back to China because I, I used to live there before as well. And the views on sexuality are coming from a much more of a traditional cultural background. Um, it's still a situation where, especially in, Ch in China, because they have one or two child policies in at the time, the importance of family and having children and the, the cohesiveness of the family unit is 
it's the most important thing in all of society. And mm. that's something that we in the West are very quick to disregard. Like in, in my case, for example, I'm very quick to go buy and then go abroad. Whereas in China, it's uh, you go away for a year or two to study, but then you would come back. And coming out to your family in China is a proposition that not many people uh, relish. And I was really surprised over my time there. Uh, I was teaching in a high school and three different Chinese students, three different boys came up to me to say, teacher, I'm gay and I don't know how to tell my parents. I don't know if I should tell my parents. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm scared about this and what to do. And it was a really eye-opening moment for me because I've come from, you know, this, this comics academia background where uh, it's very supportive. And that's allowed me to question elements of my own sexuality and how do I fit into all in like fit into the world of sexuality. But then with, when these students came forward, they knew man, like that they came forward and they said, I am gay. All I want to know is what to do about it. And that led me to asking questions like, well, how are these guys so confident in this? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. How, how do they know? How are they so sure when they when they live very much in a culture where I saw there was, um, uh, I think it was from the United Nations the other day, only 15% of LGBT Chinese people will come out to their family. 15%, right? It's, mm. it's, it's insane in comparison to, to how it is in the UK or, or the US and, and places that, you know, we, we've developed a certain view on this. So that led me to lots of questioning like about my own identity. And at the same time, uh, I was living alone over in, in China at the time, and it was pretty lonely. So I just listened to English language podcasts all the time. I just binged them constantly. Mm. And one of the ones that I got onto was a boxing podcast. And this boxing podcast hit into the identity stuff. And, you know, it's just one of those super collider moments where everything kind of comes together in a, a weird way. And the thing wrote itself, which was great. <laughs> that's awesome man um and that, that's quite funny actually so i don't i don't know if you listen to to joe rogan at all um but recently just in the past week he, he had the only openly gay professional strongman yes on there, rob kearney um and it was just a really really fascinating conversation you know i i didn't listen to that but it's interesting you should bring it up because i saw joe rogan came out and supported bernie sanders for the president the u.s democratic you know, right. whatever. And there was this big wide conversation of like Joe Rogan embodies a lot of the very hyper masculine mm. ideology, uh, the, an identity that we're talking about in a boxer, right? Like he's yeah. the, the commentator on UFC. He's this, you know, as, as presenting this image of macho masculinity as, as much as anybody can do. So when he came out and said, oh, yeah, I definitely support this socialist running for president. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of arguments I saw of, well, do we really want him here, right? Do we want this guy on our side? And it was interesting to watch those conflicts play out because that those questions are very much what we're trying to tap into in the book and how these different identities can coexist. Can they coexist? And can they coexist inside one person? 
That's awesome, man. Um, and yeah, if you do get the time, yeah, definitely listen to that show. Yeah, I will. Because it's, yeah. it's just really, really interesting. And, and you know, Joe Rogan's a very, he's a very liberal, supportive kind of guy of, you know, whichever denomination you are in any which way. He's just like, mm. yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. great. Um, awesome, man. Um, so um, all of that aside, unfortunately, I do have some bad news for you, Dominic. Oh. And that is that there is an asteroid heading right for Moscow. Oh, sh- not again. I know, again. <laughs> Sugar, yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, this one's going to be a little bit larger. So um, that's, um, yeah, unfortunate. Um, so my, my uh, questions for you are, uh, what is your action plan as the as the asteroid is heading towards us yeah um and what is your action plan uh for survival uh post impact yeah you know it's it's really unfortunate that the asteroid is heading directly towards moscow because i've always since the movie deep impact you've really touched a nerve with this <laughs> since the movie deep impact i have had uh, like i don't know a deep-rooted fear of tsunamis And uh, the biggest thing in Deep Impact wasn't like the asteroid is scary, but what was scarier was that it hits the water and then a massive wave rises and washes everything off. And I thought if I move to Moscow as far away from water as anyone can possibly be, that I I would be safe. So it's very unfortunate it's heading directly for us. Um, The immediate action plan... Hmm is really to get to the mountains. That's kind of what I learned from Deep Impact as well. Was yes. <laughs> Take I the lo- high ground. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's great in many situations. If you're Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's great. If you're <laughs> fleeing from an asteroid, it's great. Basically, just try and be in the Tibetan mountains, I think, is uh, a lesson I learned uh, quite early on. Um, but the problem with Moscow is it's generally pretty flat unless you get a train for an hour, but that's not really going to work for us either. Mm. Um, it, the, 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 Russia's just too big and it's too remote. There's not uh, an, an easy way to get out. But one thing that I have been preparing for this situation is my clean air uh, mask to wear. It's not like a medical mask like you might wear to avoid some kind of horrible topical pandemic that we might all be worried about. But <laughs> It is great to deal with inner city pollution. And my biggest concern uh, during an asteroid impact is that assuming I get into a basement or uh, definitely if I can bunker 42, which is a tourist site in Moscow, about 20 minutes walk from my house, maybe five minutes sprint if an asteroid is coming. Um, But it's Stalin's old bunker in Moscow that was designed to help him survive nuclear war. So I reckon. If I can get myself in there, I might be all right. And my pollution mask is going to make sure I survive the the dust when it settles afterwards, I hope. Hopefully that gets me through. Nice, man. That's awesome. Um, But I I, I assume there's probably going to be a few others that would probably go for a similar thing, do you think? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I might just have to kick my way through. But but one one of the things I have here is that I I teach a lot of very wealthy people who are much wealthier than me. And they all live at the top of very expensive high-rise buildings. So that's either a very big advantage or disadvantage. 
depending upon if they get hit by the asteroid on the way in or okay. if actually being higher up is going to help. I'm not sure. I might have to talk to a physicist before, uh, before making, <laughs> making that decision. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and I assume that your, your girlfriend will be joining you um, in the bunker. Well, thankfully for her, she's gone on holiday to Saudi Arabia right now. Oh, so Amazing. So while I'm here freezing, uh, she's lying on the beach. Not she's not allowed to go for a swim. I've been told that's against the rules. But of course, she's, but she's yeah. enjoying herself and relaxing in the sun. So I'm guessing that she uh, manages to avoid the asteroid impact as well. Damn her! <laughs> Fantastic. Um, but uh, as as you go into the um, into the bunker, um, you yeah. do you do meet one of your students. Oh, no. um, there who, who managed to get in um, but uh, now that you're all locked in and safe uh, yeah. the, the conversation of comics comes up uh-huh. um, and, uh, and they wonder uh, what the first comic you remember enjoying was okay so the first comic I really remember enjoying is uh, an issue of Spider-Man written by, uh, written by Paul Jenkins I think it's Spider-Man I, I actually have it here, Volume Two, Issue Thirty Seven. Uh, I'm as a kid, I was never able to buy individual comics because there were no comic shops near where I lived. Right. So the superhero comics I would get would come through mail order or through like Christmas annuals. You know, you get like the, mm. the Spider Man, Hulk, Batman Christmas annuals, and uh, I had a Spider Man one with this story in it, and it's Spider Man in New York in winter. And the city's frozen over and the suit offers no uh, winter protection. It's just Spider-Man freezing his balls off, basically, <laughs> for, uh, for, for 30 pages. And it's brilliant. And it's the first one I remember really sitting down and enjoying because he does fight the vulture a little bit. And I think the human torch shows up and there's, you know, some, some comedy banter between, between the three of them. But... What was really great about it was that it wasn't about him trying to save the day so much as him just trying to not freeze. And I never appreciated actually how useful that would be to me until now. And I feel like I learned a really useful lesson from that. But it wasn't until much later that I realized I was actually studying in school, in my my secondary school. I was studying with Paul Jenkins' nephew and his nephew, Rich, uh was in my my form group my tutor group and he always used to go oh yeah my my uncle makes uh makes comics i was like oh yeah that's pretty cool but i've never heard of him not knowing that back home i'm rereading the very issue that he has written of spider-man again and again and again and when i realized that it was like oh that that's that's the one right like uh that's the connection that kind of leads me through the whole way yeah man oh that's amazing um, amazing how these things kind of come about. It's weird, yeah, really weird. Definitely, um, and kind of from that point onwards, uh, were you constantly into comics, or was it? Were, did you take a break at any point during school? Or no, I, I kind of always read comics, but mm. I didn't. I didn't realize I wanted to write them until I was about seventeen. And uh, on my seventeenth birthday, my my stepdad gave me a copy of Watchmen, and then. It turned out that the Garden Shed was full of uh, every Vertigo comic ever written in the late 80s, early 90s. And that was the moment of going, "Okay, this is the stuff. This is this is the (laughs) this is the things I want to do. That's awesome. And so from that point onward, 
um, you're set on becoming a comic book writer. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And there was it was a useful time for me because it was also around then that I found a lot of the movies that led me to do my my degree in script writing. So I was always writing and developing something, and it didn't really matter what it was, uh, kind of as long as I was working on something. But in recent years, I've kind of left movies and TV and stuff like that, and it's just all comics, all comics all the time. That's awesome, man. Um, great. Uh, now, uh, the conversation uh, with your uh, with your student yeah. um, who made the bunker uh, moves on uh, to what is the funniest or the comic that made you laugh out loud the most? I've I thought about this for a while, and I went for Garfield without Garfield, which <laughs> I was reminded of the other day, and. I don't know if it counts because Garfield is not the comic that makes me laugh the most. It's the the Garfield strips that don't have him in it. <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate. But Garfield without Garfield really hones into part of my sense of humor for just depression and anxiety and and all of those things that it's like, oh god, I really relate to that in a hilarious kind of way because. I can't even remember Gar- the name of Garfield's owner. It's like John or something boring. I can't. I'm pretty sure it's John. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it is just John talking to himself, basically, yeah. and without Garfield there to react to it. So it'll be something like the first. It's just three panels because it's from the Garfield newspaper strip. So it'll be something like, uh, "Gar, I'm going to have a great day today," and then just two more panels of him getting to, like increasingly sad as he realizes that he's not going to be. He's not going to get any happier and. It's just, it was just bliss. Discovering that was like, okay, I'm in. I'm, yeah, I, I like this a lot. Fantastic, man. Yeah, because it's, it's uh, Garfield without Garfield has one, made one other appearance on the show um, oh, from great. one other person. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it really is fantastic. Even however kind of, you know, from a creative perspective, it sounds like it's lazy, doesn't it? Yeah, but just removing yeah. a character and everything. But it is actually really amazing. Yeah, it just brings uh, an entire new level to the strips that you didn't know would be there. But it's there's something magical about you appreciate it because you know the Garfield's not there, right? Like, if somebody just drew those strips, then mm. it wouldn't be as funny as knowing that there's supposed to be someone there to react off of. But there isn't. And uh, yeah, it's genius, genius work. Oh, absolutely, man. That's fantastic. Uh, now, the next question uh, that crops up and uh, changing emotional gears here. Yeah. Uh, what is the saddest or most upsetting comic that you've read? Yeah. It was an issue of Ice Cream Man, which is a great horror anthology um, released out of image the last couple of years. Just I, I loved it, completely fell in love with the series. And I was working in Turkey last year and kind of catching up on stuff that I'd missed. And I thought, great, I've got an ice cream man to catch up on. That will be great. And I read, I can't, I can't remember. I was so upset by this comic. I can't remember which issue it was because I never read another issue after that. It made me so depressed. But this issue of ice cream man was, uh, I'm pretty sure it was about a guy and his dog. And his dog dies, but then the the 
devil in ice cream man like brings back the dog but with a curse of it you know there's a, a twist and some kind of satanic shit's going sorry some satanic stuff's gonna happen and by the end of the comic the dog dies again and the man is completely heartbroken and i was so sad after i read that issue i closed my laptop and i just left where i was staying and just walked for like an hour because it made me so depressed and i've never been able to go back to ice cream man after that um i i I loved it it was one of my like top five like ongoing comics for a long time and then i just couldn't do it after that so uh maybe one day i'll go back but it just made me so sad (laughs) oh man that's brutal Um, i I just for everybody to get kind of a, a bit of a taste of of what ice cream man is how would you best describe it oh ice cream man's great so or it was um So the ice cream man himself is, you know, a a character who drives around in an ice cream van giving ice cream to children. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a classic horror anthology series. And each issue is kind of another form of uh, another horrific story. And the only connection between all of them is the ice cream man himself. And you know that he's really doing something terrible. (laughs) And uh sometimes it will be you know just even giving an ice cream can lead to uh can lead to catastrophic consequences and like there's a pet spider that that a kid has and it bites his family and then his whole family just become mummified shriveled beasts and it's it's kind of gross and disgusting and horrible but yeah brilliant brilliant series Absolutely fantastic. Um, because just looking on the image website right now, um, the way they describe it, well, the, the log line is kind of chocolate, vanilla, existential horror, drug addiction, musical fancy. There's a flavor for everyone's misery. Yes. <laughs> That's kind yes. of their pitch. Um, yeah. But also on the image website, um, you can read the first issue for free. Oh, so, yeah. I'd recommend that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, if if people want to go check that out, uh, just search "image ice cream man." Yes, um, and then yeah, right there on the issue one page, you can read the first issue for free on the image website. So um, thank yeah. you very much, Image. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Free. yeah, it was one of those series that I just couldn't stop recommending to people. Right when they were like, "Oh, what are you reading? This good?" It was just Ice Cream Man. Read it, and then it just broke my heart, and I couldn't do it anymore. Brutal, man. Yeah. So. Um, but uh, yeah, for anybody else that wants to try and try and take the test of Ice Cream Man, uh, yes. go check it out on the Image website. Um, yeah. Now, uh, the next question that crops up is, uh, what is the scariest or most horrifying comic that you've read? Yeah, this one, I had to think, because I've read recently quite a lot of Japanese horror for the first time, and like uh, Uzumaki and, and stuff like that. And that really creeped me out. But I kind of felt prepared for it because people had told me how creepy it was going to be. Um, I think the first comic I read that really cre- like actually made me go, was Lock and Key. And Lock and Key, it's, it's again, like Joe Hill kind of writes creepy comics, but they're not horror comics necessarily. Um, but there is one particular panel in, I think, I think it's in the first volume of Lock and Key, where we see the villainous character in it's kind of like in a painting in uh, in the background and it reminded me uh, when i saw it of the ring the the japanese movie the ring and right. this kind of climbing out of the well 
like uh, just kind of moment. And so the rest of the book wasn't scary at all. It was just this one panel where this like photograph of the villain is kind of behind them. And it's this intimidating. It's just uneasy, right? It's uneasy to look at. And there were a few times in Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo's Batman where they tried to kind of recreate something similar with um, using the Joker because they played around with the Joker a lot in that. The first one where he kind of had his face cut off was a good example of that. Mm. And there were some there were some pretty creepy moments in that uh, that was really cool. But the the one they did later where he comes back with the brand new face and they kind of mess around with this concept that maybe he's a mortal and the, the Joker's in pictures from like the 18th century and all of this kind of weird stuff. It kind of felt like they were trying to do that same thing as Lock and Key. And it didn't work for me quite as well, maybe because I was older by that point. But yeah, just that, just, it wasn't like a jump scare or anything like that. It was just, yeah, a really uh, incredible, just this looming threat that you don't want to acknowledge is there, I think. Yeah, yeah but, man, and, and, and that can be often the case with kind of horror and things yes. like that. It's about the tension. Yes, and now that I've started talking about this, I thought of like three others, uh, <laughs> if we have some time, if that's all right. Go for it. Okay, all right. Uh, Attack on Titan, uh, the manga. Um, there's a bit in Attack on Titan that really freaked me out. And like, again, I was like 26, 27 reading this, so it really should not have freaked me out as much as it did. But there's uh, there's this bit in Attack on Titan, it's in... Well, one of the earlier, maybe like uh, issue 30, 40, something like that. Um, But they are, all of our heroes are trapped inside a giant tower and um, they're surrounded by monsters and they they go down, they kind of open the door and there's just this looming, terrifying face as you turn the page. And that face freaked me out, man, like like no, like nothing else. And if I, I... was doing my master's degree at the time and I told one of the artists oh this page like terrifies me so what she did was she went away she got like an A4 paper did the best rendition of this titan and then stuck it on the door of my bedroom so that every time I would open my bedroom door this freaking titan would be there and that was uh, that was pretty scary to come home to every night <laughs> Brutal, man. Yeah, that sounds freaky. And uh, what were the others? Oh yeah. Oh no, I've I've now forgotten them. Oh, c- can I come back to them if I remember? Yeah, we can, yeah. yeah if you remember, let's let's yeah. come back to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, man. Um, gosh, uh, manga knows how to do horror. That's they for sure. really do. They really do. <laughs> and it's like the same with the Japanese horror movies and stuff like that as well. They just yeah, they, yeah, they know what they they know how to terrify you. Oh, that's for sure. And uh, like in film as well. I remember my. My mate, um, he he used to watch like Japanese horror all the time. Mm-hmm. And, like this one where um, I don't know if you know anything about Japanese films, so you might not know this one. But I can't remember the the name of the film. But he basically kind of had his face sewn up with nails or something. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like his cheeks, and it's like, oh my yeah. gosh, like that's just so weird. Yes. <laughs> and he made us watch this after like a night out. 
yeah you know not only were we tired but yeah like freaking out but yeah thanks buddy yeah (laughs) (laughs) thanks guy yeah Um, uh but uh yeah moving on to more positive things um my uh the next question that comes up is uh what is your favorite cover yes my my favorite cover this is the first of many mentions of uh of this particular comic but my my favorite cover of all time is uh, the Brian Bolland cover for Animal Man issue number five. Um, it's the issue, the Coyote Gospel, and the cover is um, Animal Man lying on the ground, or looking as if he's crucified over kind of tire tracks. Um, but then, as we go down the cover, we see that he's being coloured in uh, by the hand. We assume of Brian Bolland, and it's. Mm. Um, a metaphysical comment on comics themselves and the creation of comics that really ties into the content in the issue and really enhances the work that is, that's being done in the comic. Because one of the big problems I have with comic covers, I think lots of people have the same feeling is like this cover doesn't actually tell me anything about what I can expect. Right? Like, the cover is just, I don't know, Rogue and Gambit fighting each other. And it's like trouble in paradise. Mm-hmm. And like that doesn't tell me anything about what to expect. But like the, the Brian Bolland covers are works of art completely on their own. And it really feels like the comics are building off of the beauty of yeah, the beauty of the strip. Like this issue takes place. Uh, kind of in like the desert of Arizona or New Mexico or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we see like the dirt on the ground behind him. So it gives us an idea of what's going on. And the, the story's kind of focuses on a trucker as well. So the tire tracks tell us something and the story itself is messianic in like, it's called the coyote gospel and it's about a messianic figure. So like the cover actually tells us everything about the book. And it's just a gorgeous piece of work that has influenced a lot of the the comics that I've done afterwards, which is really great. Absolutely, and it's certainly one that stands out on a on a shelf. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, one of my my most prized possessions is uh, the 30th anniversary edition of Animal Man, like Grant Morrison's run on Animal Man, and that's right. the cover of the book and. It kind of feels like if it was any of the other covers, it just wouldn't have that same magical feeling that it does. Yeah, man, and it's quite a, quite a bold choice to to go down that line of kind of you know breaking the fourth wall, so to speak. Yeah, and it it's kind of again, um, it's a lot of what Grant Morrison was doing in his Animal Man run as well. Mm. Um, it really feels on topic for the themes that he's exploring throughout the series and. Like he's, he deals with a lot of animal rights stuff as well because he's always cared about those things. But Grant Morrison has a very, throughout his entire career, just these fourth wall breaking concepts of, you know, multiverses that are all comics panels that are all, you know, it's, uh, he's always been working on this one theory. And you can really see how his ideas and theories are being developed in this book. And that's kind of it in its purest form, I think, because because he hasn't quite reached peak weirdness yet. It's still pretty weird, but he hasn't reached peak weirdness. So the storytelling is still 
perfect. Whereas when I get to like some of his later DC stuff, like I don't know what's going on. So he's got all these concepts of, you know, of, you know, the, the comic as reality, but I don't, I can't see past it because there's like 10 Superman and they're all in a, a ship traveling between panels. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> on another level, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, this cover in particular, um, if you want to look it up, listeners, uh, it's animal man number five, just Google yes. that and it will come up. And it's the one, yeah, where, as you say, animal man is lying down on the ground in kind of a crucifix type position with tire tracks on the ground behind him. And obviously what is Brian Bolland's hand drawing, uh, painting and coloring mm. him in. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, wow. I mean, that's um, epic. And I, I wonder kind of who came up with that initial idea between yeah. the two of them. Yeah, I'm not sure. I um, Brian Bolland is just really one of those artists that has never really been matched, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's kind of him, him and Alex Ross, I think in terms of cover artists, like, Alex Ross just does the world's most incredible covers because that's like his career now, I think is just making the most good, like the, all of the covers for immortal Hulk and everything are just mind blowingly good. Um, and yeah, I think Brian Bolland just was perfect for the, the comics of the time. That's awesome, man. Awesome. Uh, now, uh, moving on to, um, one of the most interesting questions and that is what is the most meaningful comic for you? Yeah, the most <laughs> yes, the most meaningful comic for me. Um, this is going to be a little bit uh, difficult to explain, but the most meaningful comics to me are the royal blood, the royal blood arc of Hellblazer, uh, which is yeah the original, the good run on John Constantine. Um, this is when he's being written by Garth Ennis as well in the early nineties, I think, mm-hmm. and. The Royal Blood arc, yeah, it's three three or four issues. And it appears that John Constantine is going to have to deal with the resurgence of Jack the Ripper, basically. Jack the Ripper has returned. But as the story goes on, we realize that Jack the Ripper himself was actually embodied by a demon uh, because it's Constantine, so of course he was. And that demon has now returned and embodied an unnamed member of the royal family who we never see his face other than his big ears and he is now in the streets murdering uh murdering people basically and i as i said before when uh, i first discovered these uh old vertigo comics in in the family shed uh when i was about 17 this was the comic that I just went, oh, God. Um, like, Watchmen, Watchmen was amazing and a huge influence. Like, there's no doubt. Mm, sure. but, it was, but it was reading the Royal Blood arc where I went, can we do this? Yeah. Can we suggest that the royal family has a member who was a serial killer and that, and that if, you go to, uh, if you go into parliament, you'll see politicians blending cats and like it's just i i think this is garth ennis just at, like absolutely at his highest point because he's always been a a writer you know and i want i don't want to say an adult writer but mm. somebody who's willing to 
stick a finger up to authority and right. you know yeah he's not he's not holding anything back but this was one of those moments where it was just kind of uh this is everything i would want to be writing <laughs> right like at, at that time in my life being like oh i would like to be saying this about the royal family and what's really amazing about it is that I read it like, this is crazy and I can't believe he can say this. And then you come to 2019, 2020, you realise might, it might not be Jack the Ripper, but they're not that freaking far off. No, not at so, all. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's one of those perfect moments. And that's exactly why the Hellblazer comics of the time were so perfect for me. Um, because they were written 20 years before I read them, but they captured... Britain in the late 80s and early 90s in a way that like nothing else ever did I think um like the character of Constantine was this perfect vessel that explored what it was like to to be in that time and to live in that world and how messed up the country was and how estranged we all were from each other and I think that's something that we're missing now um, in comics is especially with with characters like Constantine where I just don't see that same attempt to uh, show the country as it is and it's something that I feel especially with characters like Captain Britain which Alan Moore like reinvented basically in, in the early 80s was that like Captain Britain is one of those characters that can literally be your metaphor for the nation right like mm. like he's uh he's covered in in the flag in the same way that captain america was during the watergate uh the watergate stuff during the right. 70s he became nomad and all of this and we have these characters these british characters like v from v for vendetta or or captain britain or or constantine and like or even like doctor who right Mm. And we need these cultural figures in a time when we are so divided. Like, it doesn't really matter what it is you believe in. Everyone acknowledges that we're divided and we need these kind of characters to be addressing these things, not going on adventures with Merlin or something like that, you know. (laughs) that's awesome man Um, and uh, continuing on from that um, what do you think is the most underrated comic Mm. the most underrated comic I think I've also decided on a Hellblazer (laughs) a Hellblazer one yes I'm I'm sticking with the theme because one of my my favourite arcs of Hellblazer outside the Royal Blood one uh, is called Family Man and it comes after a big, epic, magical adventure. I think it comes after the Fear Machine story arc, which was another one that almost went on my most cherished comics of all time, actually, list. But um, it's a big, epic, uh, magical journey with, you know, lots of... I think it ends with, like, dragons and, you know, like, Celtic summonings and all kinds of crazy stuff. But then Family Man is Constantine returning from this crazy adventure and he encounters a serial killer who is just an old man who is a serial killer and Constantine can't deal with it because it's just a a guy and there's no like there's no devil 
There's no, uh, you know, angels who are chasing after him because he affronted God or anything like that. It's just John Constantine, the man, trying to escape from, you know, from the the his father's generation, and it ties into a lot of themes of, uh, of well, of family. It's called Family Man. That's kind of the point of it. Um, and that's really a really special story, I think, is taking the time out from what the reader expects to be reading and following something completely different. And I think there's a point in it where Constantine even buys a gun because he's like, I don't I can't deal with this. Like this is a guy now in DC Comics. He's like shooting fire from his hands and all kinds of craziness. And uh no, there was just something pure, something pure about that time where he was just uh, a guy trying to deal with the relationship with his dead father. And yeah, yeah, it's a really, really brilliant story that's just kind of looked over, I think. That's awesome. Uh, do, you, do you know when that was published? Mm, I'm all, all of the Constantine comics I read are all from a, basically a two year period of each other. Yeah. Um, let me have a look. Yeah. Mm. It will be either the late 80s or the early 90s <laughs> there's, there's, there's no time yeah um where where are we oh there we go it's hellblazer issue 20 24 to 30 this character of the family man appears so yeah it's going to be like uh 89 or, or something like that i guess that's awesome man. It's, it's amazing just the staying power that some of these comics have got Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. November, November 1989 is. That's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's just, it's one of those things with comics where they can, there are so many of them because they come out every month, sometimes twice a month, that they can easily be forgotten. But like, there are real works of art and influential things that kind of, uh, yeah, they can get passed over. And I think this is one of them that should be brought back. Nice man. Uh, now, um, for you, we come on to the most difficult question, and that is for you: uh, what is the best comic of all time? Yes, I'm going to go with again. I'm only ever talking about the same comics here, but I'm going to go with the Animal Man issue number five by Grant Morrison, the Coyote Gospel, and. It's just comics in its best form, I think, mm. this issue of, of Animal Man. I've, I've got it here in front of me. Let, I, I will open it while, while we talk so that I, yeah, I, can, uh, I can look at it while, um, while it's going on. But it's the story of um, – <laughs> it's, it's a great story. It's the story of um, basically Wiley Coyote and – uh, Wiley Coyote from uh, you know, from Road Runner from is, is Wiley Coyote Looney Tunes? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the story of Wiley Coyote who always dies, basically in his own comics. Right? It's the recurring cycle of I want to catch the Road Runner, but I keep you know being hoisted by my own petard and dropping giant boulders on my head and, and all of this kind of stuff. And Wiley Coyote, who is this undead cartoon character, basically who can't die. Um, goes to God and says to God, you basically, uh, oh, here we go. I, I have the quote here. 
the character is he's not Wiley Coyote literally. He's called Crafty in this one. You know, which is you know, Wiley and Crafty. Good work, Grant Morrison. Um, he goes to God, and the, the the quote here is, "And God spoke unto Crafty, saying, You must be punished for this rebellion against my will. Nevertheless, I am a good God, and my judgment will be tempered with mercy." So God then God is shown with a paintbrush in his hand, suggesting that God is actually, of course, the artist and the animator that makes all of these terrible things happen to Wiley Coyote and to to the cartoon characters who exist in this world of violence. The quote is violence and cruelty, where these characters are tortured for our entertainment constantly. And the the God character of, I suppose, Brian Bolland or the artist or even Grant Morrison himself evolves him from a simple cartoon character into the world of DC comics, right? He takes a step up from 2D animation, I guess, to 3D comics. And he's still undead, and he's trying to uh, give his gospel, right? He's a religious messianic figure. He's died constantly for, for, for his sins. And he suffers and suffers and suffers until he gets to Animal Man, and he gives Animal Man his, uh, the gospel that he's carried with him, and he can't read it. Animal Man can't read it. And it's tragic and horrific. And then the coyote is shot with a, a silver bullet because he, somebody thinks that it's a werewolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he dies. And the end of the comic is the coyote dying in the same cross as we see Animal Man on in the cover uh, on a on a crossroads as, as we kind of zoom out on the paintbrush of God again. And it doesn't matter how many times I read this comic, it still it blows my mind again every time. It's heart wrenching and beautiful, and really, I, I think it's the it's one of my favorite comics for sure. And I think it's probably the best Grant Morrison comic that I've read um, because. Yeah, again, it's that in in 30 pages, less than 30 pages, that's everything he's trying to say and everything mm. he's trying to do in one comic. And all of these expansive ideas that he's built on about new gods, old gods, the universe is all coming to an end. Those are all great, but there's nothing as perfect in 30 pages as that comic is, which is why I think to me it's it's probably the best. That's awesome, man. Um, and uh, yeah, amazing that he's managed to fit it into into what was it thirty pages? He said, "Yeah, yeah, absolutely." And I, it's uh, a superhero comic that Animal Man barely even features in it. I mean, in in these in these comic in like this run, it's not really he's a superhero, but there's not much superhero stuff going on. Um, it's more about him and his cat or something like that. But this is just yeah. It, the it was this was a huge influence on the work that I did later on, as I said with uh, the Brian Bolland cover as well. I did I wrote a comic called To Leave a Legacy with uh, Gary and Mark, who I'm doing the boxer comic with, and that story is all about an artist who's so desperate to leave his legacy on the world that um, he basically destroys the universe. <laughs> essentially (laughs) but it's a lot of the ideas and the themes and the references that we are building upon 
uh, would come straight out of that strip. And yeah, it's it's just it's art, just pure art. For and if if and when people say, oh, if I could read, if I should read one comic, what should I read? And people say, oh, read Watchmen. It's like no, Watchmen's too long. It's too in depth. Yeah. Uh, read read this one issue of Animal Man. That's awesome, man. Um, and speaking of which, um, if you could only take one comic into the apocalypse, which would it be? Mm. Well, I guess in my hand now, I'm holding the 30th anniversary edition of Animal Man. So it would be a little bit hypocritical. However, there's one book I've been trying to get now for years, and that is the the Daredevil Born Again Artist Edition, which is the Dave uh, Mascelli pencils of the, the best Daredevil story, probably Born Again. And it's really difficult to get. It's a giant oversized book and it's very expensive. So I saved up for a long time to get a version of it. I finally had one, but then I live in Russia and they, I couldn't pay for it. I had the money, but the money couldn't get back to the UK and I lost it. I lost the book. Oh, no. It was soul destroying. So for the moment, I'm going to say if the asteroid is hitting tomorrow, I'm taking Animal Man. But if I eventually get that born again, it has been such an effort to get that artist edition book. I, I, will, I will kill anyone to keep hold of that book. So, uh, yeah, so I, I would probably have to go with that one in the future. That's fantastic, man. Um, awesome. And uh, along with, uh, with either of those, uh, what weapon, tool or useful item would you like to take into the apocalypse? Yeah, I thought about weapons, but I, I, unless I bring one punch man with me, uh, the asteroid's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be that beatable. So I, I don't really want to be fighting people. So I think I was, I decided on the, the pollution mask that I mentioned earlier, because I can't stand, I can't stand breathing in pollution, which is terrible because I've lived in, I lived in China for two years. I lived in Hong Kong for a year. I now live in Moscow. It's like, <laughs> For so, I grew up in, in Somerset, like with clean air and the smell of cow poo. And now I now it's just breathing in dirt, just literal dirt every day. And uh, I got to have that mask, Sam. I got to have it. So, yeah, yeah that's that's what's coming with me. Yeah. That's fantastic, man. Um, and uh, yeah, we can, we can certainly provide you with that. Um, so, uh, Dominic Archer, thank you so much for sharing your comics for the apocalypse. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. And uh, one more time, uh, where can people find you on the interwebs? Yes, so I am at uh, DominicArcherComics.com, at ComicsArcher on Twitter, or go to Kickstarter and search for a boxer to back us and help us make this comic come to life. Fantastic. And then do you have any events coming up this year at all? Uh, I don't know. Because I'm in Moscow at the moment, I haven't made any plans. But I tried to get back for one or two conventions Basically, so I can just remind people who I am. Uh, last year, last year I went to Comic Salopia, which was really good because it was empty. There was no one else there, so I just attacked Frank quietly for a weekend <laughs> until he remembered who I was. Um, and uh, my hope is that when I see him next, he doesn't just go, "Oh crap, it's that guy." <laughs> <runs away. laughs> nice man nice um well yeah if you do if you do make it to any cons this year make sure you let me know um yes, it'd be it'd be great to catch up face to face yeah that'll be awesome thanks sam
Awesome, dude. Well, uh, take care, um, and hopefully the asteroid doesn't really come to hit. And if it does, I hope it hits Saudi Arabia so my girlfriend can, <laughs> my girlfriend can, can get it. <laughs> <clears throat> and deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks again, Dominic. Cheers. Bye. Thanks again to Dominic for being on Comics for the Apocalypse. It was an absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed the show today, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will it let me know that you liked it, but I believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. If you'd like to check out Dominic's work or follow him on social media, those links are in the show notes, along with all of our own links to the various areas of the internet. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, be sure to visit Comic Scene Magazine's website at comicscene.org for comic news and lots of other fun sequential art stuff. And finally, as long as the apocalypse doesn't come to pass in the next week, I'll see you next Monday. Bye for now.